In the middle of February, Neffet wrote to Cabinet for the very last time. It advised the government to lift most public health restrictions and said its work was done. It is important that people are assured that while the pandemic is not over, it is safe to return to the activities we all enjoy. The Chief Medical Officer, Tony Holohan, told the Taoiseach it was time to disband the emergency team he headed. It was a moment which should have marked the end of one of the most extraordinary periods in the history of the Irish state. But while Neffet as we knew it has gone away, COVID-19 hasn't. High COVID case numbers in hospitals are said to be leading to a heightened level of risk across the health service. In recent weeks, the country has been swamped by a second wave of the Omicron variant, and that shows no sign of subsiding. We have patients everywhere. We have an environment which is conducive to the spread of an airborne disease. Without the team of public health experts to navigate the still choppy waters, who is calling the shots now? And what is happening behind the scenes? I'm Connor Pope, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, how will Ireland face the next phase of COVID-19 without Neffet? Irish Times political reporter Jack Horgan-Jones is co-author of Pandemonium, an upcoming book about the pandemic in Ireland. Jack, can you start by reminding us what Neffet was, when it was set up, and what role did it play over the course of the pandemic? Well, in some ways it's it's more instructive to, to say what is a NEFIT as opposed to what is the NEFIT because NEFIT, the National Public Health Emergency Team that was set up to uh, confront the coronavirus, as we used to call it, as it came over the horizon in early 2020, is only the latest iteration of a model that has been set up many times previously in the history of the state. It's not even the first NEFIT that Tony Holland has chaired. I mean, there was NEFITs for, for things that you haven't even heard of and there was NEFITs for, for a swine flu. And um, the difference, I think, between this Neffet and the previous Neffets is the fact that in sharp contrast to previous pathogenic threats that the state has had to confront, this threat convulsed and consumed the entire apparatus of the state in a way that previous threats didn't. And another thing that that was different as well is that the political system was in a state of near total flux at the time that the pandemic hit. We'd just gone through an election which was entirely inconclusive. The caretaker government that was in power was a government in the constitutional sense, but a lot of its authority had ebbed away. And it was faced by this extraordinary threat that required a mass mobilization of the state. And in within that context, a huge amount of, of primacy and power was devolved to wider officialdom, but more specifically to the group of of medical advisors that gathered around Tony Holhan, who rapidly became an overnight celebrity and someone who was invested with, I suppose, initially in that first phase, the the hopes for salvation of, of a wider population. And how quickly was it constituted when it became clear that coronavirus was going to become a really big deal? Fairly quickly and, and interestingly enough, with, with fairly little fanfare. As I said, there's been Neffets before. There, there may not be Neffets again. They may decide to change the, the name after all this. But one of the interesting things is that formally the governance around setting up a Neffet is not particularly evolved. Nobody's really given it much thought. There's not even 
a cabinet decision underpinning this. You know, there's no ministerial order. It's not as if Simon Harris, who it would have been at the time, sat down in his office in Maison Plaza and said, right, okay, we have to set up an effort. It was just a decision taken by the chief medical officer. They started meeting in late uh, January around the same time that a, that a similar kind of structure was set up with HSE called the National Crisis Management Team. And it just kind of went from there. And it was only really about a month or six weeks later when the lockdowns started rolling in that Neffet as Neffet, the thing that the thing that it became within the wider imagination really emerged. So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you again for coming in uh, to our daily briefing. Uh, today, uh, we're confirming that Ireland has uh, diagnosed one uh, new case of COVID-19. And who decided who was on a Neffet or Neffet, as I would have called it up until about 30 seconds ago? Largely, it's the it's the chief medical officer in any kind of formal sense. You know, they're they're the 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 chief advisor within the Department of Health and de facto the chief advisor to the government. And you know, they chair Neffet, so they decide the various different expertises from the worlds of of academia and research, from working doctors, and from within uh, the HSE who they want to to sit on it. Now they don't. They don't always get their way, and in fact, there there have been instances of Tony Holan seeking to get people onto Nefesh who uh, the the request being rejected. But by and large, it's 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 a function of the the chief medical officer to decide who goes on Nefesh. Now that wasn't always the case, and particularly as Nefesh evolved and became this thing that was first of all loved and then reviled by the political system as the pandemic evolved, there had there were various efforts to 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 try and shake up Nefesh to change the membership. Stephen Donnelly suggested it before he became health minister and afterwards the Taoiseach wanted to do it and you know the the fact that the political system could or couldn't get representatives onto Neffet became a kind of proxy battle within the wider power plays that that began to evolve around devising and establishing what was pandemic policy and who had decided what the pandemic policy was going to be. And there was a sense at least for some of the crisis that Neffet was calling the shots when it came to policy, not only public health policy, but did it ever have more than an advisory role when it came to dealing with COVID? I mean, was it only able to offer advice? If you look at it in, in a purely formal sense, um, Neffet had no power whatsoever. Uh, you know, the the credo that was that was coined and often put forward when Neffet was trying to defend itself against these charges was that, you know, Neffet advises and government decides. But of course, that, that glosses over a multitude of sins and is kind of willfully ignorant of how the whole sausage was made when it came to, to pandemic policy. Because I think we all became painfully familiar with the fact that, you know, the, the rhythms of a Neffet meeting, when is the Neffet meeting being convened? What are they going to discuss? Uh, what does the modeling say? When are they going to meet with government? All these things became the defining set pieces of how a particular part of policy was put together. So while if you, if you want to look at it in terms of, you know, the black and white, what, what power does Neffet have? They had very little power, but in actuality and partially as a result of decisions that were making consciously at the start of the pandemic to co-tow entirely with the public health advice and to put it in place in almost in its entirety, if not in its entirety, that power became very entrenched across the entire, I would argue, two years of, of Neffet's existence. But of course, the government in many respects was damned if it did and damned if it didn't, because if it adhered to Neffet advice, 
which it did on so many occasions. Well, then people were critical of the government. And then if it deviated from Neffet advice and things went badly wrong, as indeed did happen, then people were very critical of the government. So did that make the government led by both Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin reluctant to go against the advice of Neffet? And were there any notable occasions when the government policy significantly diverged from what Neffet was telling it to do? I think in the first instance, they were very happy to have an effort there because they were, they were doing things that had never been done. It was the most dramatic intervention by a government in the lives of people, ordinary people, that has ever happened in the history of the state and perhaps ever will. I mean, let's not forget just how drastic it was in early March of 2020 when they said to everyone, stay at home. And everyone did. And then a large part of that advice was, was codified in, into law and it became illegal to do things like go more than two kilometers from your home. So I think when they were doing such, such drastic interventions, such unprecedented interventions, it was quite comforting and quite welcome and not a bad deflector shield as well to say, look, we are only following the advice of the experts here. This is a medical emergency and we're following the advice of the doctors. Throughout all of this, the government has acted on the advice of the Chief Medical Officer and the National Public Health Emergency Team, an expert team of public health doctors, virologists and scientists. I said there would be a calm before the storm. And the aim of every single action that we've taken is to reduce the impact of that storm in our country. That waxed and waned as the pandemic went on, partially because I think when we got into the summer of 2020 and there was that first kind of drumbeat for unlocking and we and we did relax the restrictions across June, July and, and into August of, of 2020, although we never quite got the, the wet pubs reopened. And um, there was a sense that this, this is the last time, you know, and, and I don't think anyone ever really had that kind of honest conversation with the, with the public or even within government that, you know, the, the, the nature of this pathogen, the nature of this virus is such that it is going to come back. It's a medical inevitability. As long as it is there and as long as people are mixing and, and once that is not mitigated by a vaccine or a pharmaceutical intervention that either reduces harm or reduces transmission, it is going to come back. It is going to be just as bad as it was the first time, if not worse. And because that dynamic was allowed to build up over the summer without anyone really addressing it or confronting it, then, then there was this kind of conflagration in the October, in October, early October of, of uh, 2020, when Tony Holan, who had been absent on a period of compassionate leave to care for his, his terminal wife, came back and advised in short order, in a matter of days, really, that there had to be a level five lockdown. And government rejected that advice out of hand. Um, and that really set in train you know, you could make a very strong argument, and certainly my view, that set in train a sequence of events that culminated in the disaster that was Christmas 2020 and, and, and the early months of 2021, when we saw a level of death and mortality associated with infection, which, you know, was bigger than, than the first wave, brought the hospital system closer to collapse, and ultimately was more avoidable because we knew what we were dealing with at that stage. And we, you know, there was deviations from the public health policy advice uh, that the government took that, you know, they will stand over now, but certainly I think in, in the grand reckoning and from the perspective of, of over a year hence are politically difficult for the government, to say the least. Now, you mentioned the rhythm of events over the course of the pandemic. 
there would be a, an effort meeting and then government would be briefed and then we'd get a, a statement or a, an address to the nation from the Taoiseach, whoever that might have been at the time. But there was another element to that rhythm and that was the leaks that were coming out of Neffet. I presume you were you benefited from some of those leaks yourself. Did those leaks cause the government problems and did it damage the relationship significantly between policymakers and public health officials? Well, there's a presumption in the question that they're always coming from Neffet. <laughs> so I think that the fact of the matter is um, that any objective reading of how leaks emerged, I think, will show that both sides are at it. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not betraying any confidences in saying that. You know, I think that the whole issue of leaks and rows over leaks was more a kind of a cipher for how the relationship was between government and Neffet at a particular time. Like, for example, uh, there was an enormous row in December of last year when Neffet began to advise that restrictions needed to be put in place in the face of the, the Omicron variant. And there was an allegation, effectively, that Neffet had leaked this, bounced the government again in, in the coalition's telling into a decision that, you know, it didn't want to make, obviously, but also in some ways undermined its democratic legitimacy by trying to make the decision for it. Again, this is the allegation made by the government, by trying to make the decision for it through a leak of, of its advice. You know, the advice to unlock in January was also leaked, liberally, and there was no fallout from it because it's advice to the upside, it's advice the government wanted to hear. So really, I think that, you know, the volume of Sturm und Drang that followed a particular leak told you not much about who was leaking or whether Neffet was leaky or whether the government was leaky. It told you more about the nature of the relationship between the two, the two kind of power centres at that time and how they were getting on or otherwise. Coming up, how future waves of COVID are likely to be managed. Our journey through the pandemic has brought many twists and turns, and I've stood here and spoken to you on some very dark days. But today is a good day. One of the last major moves by Neffet was in February when it said that virtually all restrictions could be lifted almost immediately. Did that take the government by surprise, given how conservative Neffet had been over the course of the pandemic? So yes and no, because I think, as you, as you say, the natural inclination of, of Neffet was to be conservative across the two years of, it, of its existence. But to take that decision in isolation or take that set of advices in isolation... There had been a dialogue back and forth between senior members of government, senior members of the civil service and the Neffet leadership in the kind of week or so leading up to that decision. And there hadn't been any signal. No flare had been sent up around, you know, we have particular concerns. I think what what took them aback was not that the advice was to reopen, but perhaps that it was to do it in this kind of big bang approach, you know, effectively that we would have what was kind of an equivalent, an Irish equivalent of the UK Freedom Day, where mm. um, restrictions will be lifted very quickly and, and, and all at once. And that that was surprising. But I think if you, if you look more closely at the kind of the nature of the advice that, that fell out of Neffet, it's always had a kind of almost, you know, kinetic logic to it. It's always been if X, then Y. 
And as soon as vaccines came onto the pitch in a meaningful way and, and a significant portion of the population and particularly the vulnerable population were vaccinated last summer, there was a liberalism attached to it. And when Tony Holland returned from his second period of compassionate leave after the death of his wife, he actually advised, you know, that outdoor dining could reopen more quickly than had been planned. And, and, you know, once vaccines came onto the pitch, that kinetic logic held that once harm reduction was achieved then you know you could you could equally lift restrictions and what happened in january and early february around the lifting of restrictions has that same logic to it if people aren't getting sick and dying it is very hard to justify society-wide restrictions in a way that you don't for other diseases because the disease becomes is less fatal now than other diseases that we live with every single day so while it was it was it was dramatic certainly it was probably one of those things that was kind of shocking, but not surprising if you look at it more closely. But is there any sense in government circles that its role in handling the crisis was ended too early? No, no, they're delighted to see the back of it. I think that that perhaps if, if a criticism could be offered, it would be that a replacement body wasn't wasn't appointed uh, in short order after after an effort was stood down. I think that, you know, in keeping with everything we've said so far, that, that rhythm that afforded such primacy to, to NEFID and put such emphasis on NEFID decision-making processes was something that was absolutely reviled by government. And, and in their most paranoid moments, I think I've already said, they, they felt that it kind of under, undermined the, the democratic legitimacy of government and of cabinet itself. So they, they're not they're not sad to see the back of the NEFA structure at all. But it, it does inevitably leave us in a place where we're seeing probably an unprecedented level of infection. The estimate now is that every week there's several, several hundred thousand cases taking place. But we're, this is now happening in a place where certainly from a kind of public facing point of view, a lot of the, the apparatus has, has gone and a lot of the, the kind of ways in which we understood what was happening at a given time in the pandemic have been have been stood down. So for example, Philip Nolan, the the, the chief modeler, the chair of the epidemiological modeling advisor group, he's uh, his his group is still meeting, but they're not producing any formal outputs. You know, there are none of the banks of stats and graphs that we got so used to. Obviously Neffet isn't meeting, there's no press conferences, Tony Holan is not doing any media. The Minister for Health has has done very little media recently. In fact he over the over the, the the period, I think ninth to about twenty eighth of of March, we didn't hear from him at all because he was unwell and also away on on St Patrick's Day trip. So it's a little it's a little disorientating, I think, for people who have you who have become used to having the entire COVID pandemic experience narrated by this cast of characters, you know. And it's probably disorientating for the media as well because we're cast adrift. We don't have our usual COVID coverage anchors, and all this is happening at a time where the the nature of the challenge has shifted again subtly where we have huge infection, but not a lot of mortality associated with it. And that huge infection is in fact causing more of a problem because of the few measures that remain in place to try and mitigate the impact of it, namely isolation rules and uh, infection prevention control rules that are that are put in, in place in hospitals, which mean that the big impact is on the kind of volume of care that can be delivered and the type of care that can be delivered within the hospital system now. So it's, it's, it's a different challenge to what we previously faced, which was, you know, here's a virus which is going to kill an awful lot of us. Now, now that the case is, here's a virus that is not going to kill an awful lot of us, no matter how many of us get infected, but is going to throw sand in the gears of how we do very important things in the healthcare system. 
And is it too early, do you think, to assess how well or how badly Neffet managed the first two years of the pandemic? And are there any metrics we can use to measure its performance? Well, the most crude met- metric is just simply the body count, you know, and it's it's you don't want to be so reductive about it. But unfortunately, you know, that's that's when you're assessing how we did when we encountered a deadly virus, that's how you do it. And, and we did quite well. And um, the, the excess mortality rate in Ireland was 12.5 per 100,000 people. Um, in Northern Ireland, it was 138 per 100,000 people. In England, it was 125.8 per 100,000 people. And, and when we look at the, the jurisdictions to our left and right, to our east and west, to, you know, America and England, um, we had infinitely better pandemics than them. Um, our vaccine rollout wasn't quite as quick as, as theirs, but, you know, in the final reckoning, when you compare us to, to that part of the Anglosphere, which is the one that we're most usually compared to, we, we, we did quite well. And um, we didn't do as well as other parts of the Anglosphere because we didn't go for a zero COVID policy, but there are major questions over whether a zero COVID policy was ever practicable for Ireland and, and the kind of political system that, that exists in Ireland, our geographic location and all the rest of it. And then there's also questions as to whether a zero COVID policy was the correct one to do now, because if you look at the amount of acquired immunity that's built up in Ireland, you know, that is probably a contributing factor to some of the harm reduction that's going on now as well, you know? So I suppose that there is no right way of going through a pandemic. You know, everyone is going to make serious mistakes and there are significant costs associated with every single decision that's taken. When you look at it at those crude and easily measurable and relevant metrics like death, like excess death, and um, we do quite well. But there are those other things around the, the, the costs of lockdowns and, and, and restrictions, which are harder, which are harder to measure. And perhaps an effort should be made to measure them because I don't think that lockdown should be a tool in the policy armory the costs of it, the cruelties associated with it. So I think that, you know, any mature review of, of how we've done needs to look at all that in the round and needs to accept, I think, two things. One, that this is this may not be the last virus that we that we face like this. And two, the next time this comes, we should hope and endeavor to confront it without having to resort to lockdowns because of the brutality, because of the cruelty of a lockdown, because of the costs of a lockdown. And we should think about ways to mitigate the impact without all having to stay at home for the guts of two years. And of course, we're promised a new advisory group uh, in the days ahead. Do do we have a sense of who's going to be on that advisory group and how it will operate? We Well, we do, yeah. So the Tony Holland Centre... A proposal on this, which I understand does have names associated with it to Stephen Donnelly, uh, on the same day that he stood down the Neffet. Now, for, for boring seasoned Neffet nerd watchers like myself, and um, it, it had been observed for some time that, that the wider Neffet had become less relevant than a kind of close group of advisors around Tony Holland many of whom were the kind of bigger names that we that we associated with the pandemic people like Ronan Glynn, his deputy, Philip Nolan, who we've mentioned already, Killian de Gaskin. And so the the assumption, and I think it's a well founded one, is that this this successor advisory group would be populated by a lot of those people and people like Dorino Flanagan, who was a special advisor to Neffet and a very close uh, ally of Tony Holland as well. The, the suggestion, and it's been reported, is that, that Stephen Donnelly wants other people on this group. And, and again, this evokes earlier arguments where Donnelly kind of effectively put people onto Neffet, finally, eventually successfully put people onto Neffet, like um, Mark Horgan, the chief scientific advisor to the government. And a lot of the reporting around this current row 
echoes some of that because it's it's you know apparently the health minister wants scientific voices he wants people from outside the healthcare deep state as we characterized it earlier on from outside the establishment so we're told that that, that we're going to get answers to that soon but i think what would be interesting to look at then is 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 the people who are on it and also whether it deviates in any way from that proposal that went across when nefesh itself was killed off to be replaced by by Nefit 2.0 or Nefit the distilled version or whatever you want to call it. Jack Horgan-Jones, as ever, thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks, Connor. That's it for today. We'll be back on Monday. This episode of In the News was produced by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan.